die for your best friend, but would you kill for her? That's the question contemporary thriller writer Kate Quinn poses in her latest blockbuster book, Blood Sisters. It's an outback adventure that turns to nightmare for two American backpackers when they're accused of a bizarre murder in Dead Tree Creek. And like it sounds, that's at the back of nowhere. Welcome to the joys of binge reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series. So you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and our guest today, Kate Quinn, and that's Kate with a C, not a K, is a UK-based best-selling author whose books have already been published in 15 countries. She writes contemporary thrillers as Kate Quinn and historical thrillers as C.S. Quinn. Our new encore feature this month is from Martin Walker with his latest book, To Kill a Troubadour. I think Martin last appeared with us in December 2018, and that show is still one of the most popular with our audience, so you can see that he's got a great following. He's got a new book out, his new Bruno, the French police chief mystery, To Kill a Troubadour, and he'll be talking about that on Encore. It'll be on Patreon for two weeks, and then it'll go live after two weeks for general consumption. If you'd really like to hear that one early, then subscribe to Patreon. For less than a cup of coffee a month, you get exclusive bonus content, including hearing our feature guest today, Kate answering her five quickfire questions. And we've got our normal giveaway of books. We always like to give her a little present. This week it's historical fiction, so a good range of historical fiction, and that includes one of my own books, Hope Redeemed, which is book six in the Of Golden Blood mystery series, Hope Redeemed, a Spanish novella. It's normally on sale at the normal prices, but for the month, of September 15 to October 15, Hope Redeemed is included in the giveaway. As we've mentioned, you can support the show on Patreon and get exclusive bonus content every week, or if you particularly just want to say thank you for this episode because you've enjoyed it, you can buy me a cup of coffee. That's on buymeacoffee.com forward slash Jenny Wheel. X big kiss. So that's buymeacoffee.com forward slash Jenny J E N N Y W H E E L and then an X like you're blowing me a kiss. The show notes for this episode contain all the links you'll need to find out more. Or you can join our weekly newsletter where you'll get updates each week on who the new podcast guest is. But now here's Kate. Hello there, Kate, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Hi, Jenny. Thanks so much for having me. Look, you write contemporary thrillers and historical thrillers. The historicals are under a slightly different name, C. Esquin, and we'll touch on those towards the end of our show. But today we're focusing on two high-concept domestic thrillers that you've recently published, Blood Sisters and Black Widows. 
both with highly original concepts. Now, Blood Sisters, which I think is the most recent, is set in an Australian outback town. Two backpackers turn up in this little town, which is like, as it said, a scratch in the desert, Dead Tree Key, Dead Tree Creek. And more or less simultaneous with their arrival, somebody is gruesomely murdered and the town sort of turns their suspicion to these two girls and thinks they m- must be responsible. It was it ca- the town came through really strongly, and I first of all wondered, have you had personal experience about back towns? Yeah, I've spent a fair bit of time in Australia and in my youth actually backpacking round. So it would have been that would have been in the nineties. I'm forty now, so that would have been in my in my twenties. But definitely over my life, I've had experiences. Firstly, of working in the kind of um, I want to say dead end bars that we find in this town, um, and but also yeah, in, in small mining towns and those kind of communities, and and just the experience I suppose of being that kind of out of town and coming into that community and what that experience feels like. Yeah, it's a pretty gritty environment, isn't it? And I'd like to just warn some of our listeners because we often handle rather more clean and docile kind of romance stories, but. This is a little bit edgy, partly because the girls themselves are a little bit wild, but obviously the nature of a town where there's just a whole lot of men and hardly any women, porn is quite accepted as part of the normal uh, lifestyle, and there's various other things that happen in the book that are a bit eyebrow-raising as well. Have you had any comment about that side of things? Yeah, that's a really good question. I'm quite, in terms of I'm, I'm quite a wimp in terms of things being sort of very gritty or, or hardcore. So I think what I often do in my books is I often allude to things and they can seem worse really by omission, I think. They sort of seem scarier and worse than they are because I don't go into a lot of detail. But yeah, with this particular book, there, there definitely is a harder edge to it in terms of I'm kind of exploring a little bit the idea, uh, there's an idea of culpability. So these girls come into the town, a murder happens and to a lesser or greater extent, one of the girls in particular is kind of in the frame because she's seen as a bit of a good time girl. She's seen as the kind of girl who's maybe asking for it. And it makes her suspicious to the townsfolk as to her motives because they're all, she's already a questionable kind of character to them. And I kind of, I suppose, wanted to ask the question, you know, to what extent was she actually doing anything wrong in, in her behaviour, I suppose? To what extent are we judging women for their activities and their proclivities? And to what extent are they really harming no one and should be allowed to get on with things. Yes, that's right. I mean, there have been some high-profile cases where this kind of thing has come into the public domain. I mean, I'm thinking of a case in New Zealand where a girl was had a Twitter, a, a, um, what's it called? I don't even remember what it's called, but Tinder, Tinder date. And, Tinder, um, yeah. Ended up being murdered when the, and the, the claim that she'd agreed to do S&M sex that had just gone rather wrong, but he sort of tried to deny any culpability because he saw it as a consensual act, even though it was right at the edge of what we might be comfortable with. So there's definitely stuff like that going on in the real world, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's, I'm sure at one point in the not too distant future, it will be changed, but there there is currently almost a clause in the law, a sort of rough sex clause, which means that if a man murders a woman um, and there's any kind of sex involved, 
his lawyer will sort of automatically in court break out that clause and say, oh, it was rough sex and it was consensual and, th- and therefore it wasn't murder. It's a sort of a classic sort of tactic, really. Yeah. In this book, you feel rather sorry for the girls because they, in, in some sense, are slight innocence in, in the sort of environment that they land themselves in. They don't actually really quite understand the whole ramification of how their behaviour might be interpreted. Yes, and I think they're younger girls. And from my memories of being a younger woman, I think, and I'm sure you too, things sort of go over your head a bit, I think. You know, you can be put in situations where you don't quite realise. I mean, so in this book, these girls are barmaids and they're asked to wear kind of hot pants shorts and tight fitting T-shirts. And they don't really question that or, or wonder why that's the uniform. And I've certainly been, I mean, possibly I'm naive too, but I've definitely been in positions like that. And maybe had an inkling that I'm being sort of dressed in this way, you know, because because I'm hired for my my youth and gender, but not exactly thought about the message that might be delivering if I'm being put in a service role wearing a particular uniform. So yeah, I think they are innocent to that degree. But I also think they they certainly rally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's interesting because you have a structure where you tell it from one viewpoint and then the other viewpoint. And they are each concealing things from one another. So the reader sometimes knows a bit more about what's happening in the story than the, the participants in the story, the way it's written. And that's quite fascinating. Quite a lot of things, they they kind of don't disclose to one another, maybe partly to protect each other. But that's an interesting structure. And you did it also in the other book, Blood Sisters. This is something that intrigues you, that way to tell a story that way? It, it does. I really enjoy telling stories from from different perspectives. And I love the fact that in sort of human nature, and I think we all have this with, with our friendship groups, where you might have one friend who people, who different friends speak of in quite different ways. And you have a what you feel to be a rounded perception of that friend. But one friend is seeing them from one view and one friend is seeing them from another. And with both things, you build a person. But I find it very interesting how different people can see the same person and the same situation from in a completely different way. Yeah, yeah. The tagline for Blug Sisters, which I think really hooks you in right from the beginning, is you die for your best friend, but would you kill for her? And as we mentioned at the beginning, both of these books have got that thing that they call a high concept hook, which filmmakers, movie lovers love, and you have got both of these, I think, optioned to film. So talk to us a little bit about developing those high concepts. And do you do that specifically to attract the attention of the film companies? I wouldn't say I do it to attract the attention of the film companies. What I would say is I've been writing books a long time. So probably I've learned the hard way (laughs) that you, you put an awful lot of effort into writing a book and the concept isn't big, then you can lose readers. So so I think I've kind of learned that way, that I'm not going to waste all my time and spend a whole year on a book unless the concept is really big and I'm getting as many people as I possibly can. So there is that, I suppose, slightly cynical thought involved. But actually also once you hit on a high, on a what you feel to be a, a big concept, you also really, really want to write it. Uh, the only downside being that it can sometimes feel quite intimidating. I remember with Black Widows, the concept is a polygamous Mormon marriage and one of the wives murders her husband, one of three wives murders the husband is the concept. And I I came up with that idea and then really was quite challenged as to, oh, can I actually do this justice? So there is that element to the process, the downside. Yeah, 
Yeah, that that one was absolutely stunning. This man is murdered and the police are very so- certain that one of the wives did it because they live in an extremely isolated area and there's virtually no one else there that could have done it. That's what they presume. And I read somewhere, I think I just picked up somewhere, that there was a hint that that might have originally been based on something that happened in real life. Is that true? And can you tell us about it or would it spoil the story? Yeah, I I can certainly tell you what it was based on and I don't think it would spoil the story. There was, you might have even seen it on the news, maybe I want to say 10, 15 years ago, there was an enormous community cult. I'm not sure how you would describe it, but a, a religious community that was very large and was perhaps two or even three generations in that was raided in America near Texas and it was a fundamentalist Mormon community and they found there was a lot of child child marriage basically was one of the reasons it was raided and broken up but in terms of so so one of the characters in that book Black Widows the idea is she was raised in a community like this one and she was then kind of liberated if you will and put out into the normal world and expected to cope I mean, and and that particular community, I did a lot of research into that community and honestly, you couldn't make it up. I mean, it was much stranger and darker than anything I think I could have ever imagined, the kind of things go on when you have two or three generations of people believing that they're going to heaven if they have polygamous marriages and follow this particular prophet. Yes, because there was that strange aspect that they actually believed it was somehow giving them entry to heaven. Yes, and that the more children you have, they're almost kind of, they're going to come to heaven with you. So it's almost like you're building your heaven on earth, if you like, organically. (laughs) And then you would represent that in the afterlife. So that one, I think, was set in New Mexico? That one was... Or Utah. uh, Yes, Utah, yeah, the classic, just classic Mormon territory, really, just outside Salt Lake City. And have have you visited Utah or or did you have any closer connection with the Mormon community than just researching them? I I did because I have fundamentalist faith in in my family on my my mother's side. So that was kind of, not that I grew up with that in a close way, but I was certainly aware of that as something really that just seemed to cause an awful lot of drama and pain, to be honest, kind of bubbling away on that arm of the family. And uh, in terms of visiting, I've travelled widely through America, but unfortunately that was during lockdown, so I didn't get to go. My plan was to go stay with some Mormon families in Salt Lake City, but I didn't get to do that. So a lot of my research for that book had to be kind of augmented by phone calls and Zoom chats and and that kind of thing. But actually, in, in some ways, I think I ended up doing more because... I wasn't relying on the immediacy of having been there. I was really drilling down, almost like a historian would really, I suppose, the way that I would for my historical novels. Yes, interesting. We're moving towards the topic of researching. And now I understand that you are a a researcher par excellence and that in the past you've actually won a research scholarship. So tell us a bit about that side of your work and experience and how that all fits together. Sure. I mean, that in many ways, that came about unexpectedly. I, I did a degree in English. And during that degree, I happened to have two very supportive tutors. And I and I ended up doing more historical modules. And it wasn't really even a conscious choice. I just picked modules that I thought, you know, seemed to appeal to me. And then during that process, I, I did, I had both my tutors mentioned they thought I should go for this particular scholarship. And I was fortunate enough to, to do well in that degree. So, in England, you can earn scholarships for not that many things, actually. It tends to be more for the maths and the sciences. 
But I applied and I was fortunate enough to get to study, do a historical MA for, for a year in, in Brighton that was funded. So that was a, a, just a wonderful experience, really, on every level, not least to have funding as a student. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. And so did that feed into your historical thrillers, which you publish under the name of C. Esquin. And one of them is, one series is related to the French Napoleon, the Civil War Revolution. Tell us about that. And was your MA in any way involved in that time period? Yeah, very much so. My, my MA was 18th century. And the first series of books that I wrote were 17th century. I think I was being a bit strategic in some ways, thinking to myself, well, what uh, publishing seems like it's what I've always wanted to do. I've always wanted to, to write books since I can remember, but I didn't have confidence that I would be able to kind of get into this massive, scary publishing industry. So I, so I thought, oh, well, I'll write something that no one else can write and that might give me an in. A new history, or I felt a new, a new history, not, not as much as I thought I did. It turned out when I came to do the 17th century, but I enjoyed <laughs> researching it, certainly. And I came up with this idea for a thief taker in the 17th century. So I went back and researched that period. But actually, during my English degree and doing my his history research, that my period was very much 18th century. So that would have been French Revolution, all that kind of thing, which then informed my second historical series. Yeah. And with the French Revolution ones, you've got a fantastic heroine called Attica Morgan, who sort of breaks all the gender boundaries for that time. Tell us a bit about Attica. Thanks. I love writing Attica. So Attica is an escaped slave who has come to England as a child, but also has some uh, no nobility in her family. So it's a kind of slightly strange setup. And she's like a female scarlet Pimpernel and she's very active, very physical and works as a spy for the English. She's slightly based on a real life English spy or a couple of real life English spies actually who were female. And I do always find it interesting that um, when you write historical novels, there's always somebody in the reviews who knows exactly what it was like in 18th century London or 18th century England. And I think one of the comments I had was this particular character, Attica, is she's bisexual or she certainly has relationships with women. I think one of the comments was that was very modern. As, and I, I, really found, I, I really found that funny, as if there, there wasn't different sexualities in the 18th century. Yeah, they didn't exist. They're only <laughs> a 20th century invention. I know. It's funny because quite often you do find very much that thing that truth is stranger than fiction and people might say, oh, that would never happen. But in fact, it, it, it really did. Yeah, there were certainly lesbian relationships in the 17th and 18th century. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Moving on a little bit from the books to your wider life, I see that you've also got a blog about being a travel writer and eating scary food. We'll put the links to it in the show notes, but that seemed like a remarkably original thing to do as well. Tell us about that. <laughs> oh, thanks so much. But I, I, yes, I used to be a travel journalist or was for a long time. And so one of the things I really enjoy doing is trying new food. Well, that's part of my travel experience and trying, so I kind of broadened it, I suppose, to try really scary food that other people might not eat. So uh, dried spiders in Cambodia, a snake, that that kind of thing. What makes me laugh now is my I, my kids, I've got two kids aged eight and six and they're the fussiest eaters. And 
and I used to be really, really fussy. It's kind of, I, I remember I used to eat like literally nothing. So the fact that I'm now writing this blog, eating the most bizarre and crazy foods that no one would ever eat, at least gives me hope that my kids might change one day. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So have you found yourself rather more restricted by this last couple of years of pandemic? Sadly so, yeah, like like all of us. Yeah. I, I'm certainly now really enjoying you know it's like you've been asleep for two years and woken up isn't it being able to go travel so we've done some I've just done some great research trips and my kids are getting old enough I can take them along so I, I was just in the Sacre Coeur in Paris staying with some nuns and I got to take my daughter with me which was which was great fun and she did really well actually particularly because we were not no discredit to the nuns but the food was perhaps not the best food for an eight-year-old and we couldn't go out after half eight and nine so at one point we were at night mother so at one point we were literally locked in with the nuns with no food (laughs) she she dealt with it really very well oh that's great you started out in journalism tell us a bit about that journalistic experience and how has it fed into your writing I probably didn't realize quite how much the journalism fed in until recently it was almost I brought the two things together particularly with Black Widows because I had been doing historical so I so I worked as a travel journalist and a lifestyle journalist and a food journalist. I was freelance, so I also did some employment as well and a few other odd sort of topics that people didn't want to write about so much, I suppose. And I do always, I find, I just find people so interesting. I just really like talking to people. And I suppose I those odd little jobs that most people would find really boring. I, I don't know why I'm probably just a massive nerd, but I would... I could talk to someone about, you know, bottle closures on wine bottles. And as long as they're passionate about it, I find it really interesting. So that was another aspect of it, I suppose. And then with the travel, being able to get in and eat strange food and, uh, you know, get out on the edge sort of thing, that was another aspect that I really enjoyed. And I'm just now starting to bring them together more, so probably starting with Black Widows as a, you know, getting out there and doing that physical research or almost kind of from a journalistic point of view, is yes. definitely informed by writing. Yes, yes. What was the first fiction that you actually wrote and what drove you to do that very first book? The first fiction I wrote was a book on the Great Fire of London, hence it was set in 17th century London because I just thought the Great Fire was this amazing story that perhaps hadn't been told. I probably wrote it much too quickly. I got a really big agent to represent it. He went out with it and didn't sell it to anybody at all. So I thought what I'll do is I'll write the prequel to that book and then if someone buys the prequel they'll have to buy the Great Fire one and then all that work won't be wasted. So then I wrote a book called the Plague Doctor, which the name was then changed subsequently to the Thief Doctor, uh, the Thief Doctor, the Thief Taker, excuse me, and that was about the, the the plague in London, which coincidentally just happened the year before the Great Fire. So you had these two great dramatic events, and that book did get bought, luckily, and then the Great Fire one did also come out at a later date. Interesting, because you obviously have had a fairly strategic approach right from the beginning. Yeah, a little bit. I think it's probably low confidence. I do I do think about this now, particularly because I have children, that I, it's almost like I think, oh, well, I can't be good enough to go in the sort of main, uh, the way that a normal person would. I'll have to sort of sneak around and give myself a bit of an edge. But I suppose it, it has worked for me to an extent. But, oh, I, I mean, very much so, I suppose. And I've, I've really enjoyed all the books that I that I wrote. Yes, yeah, yeah. 
Are you still maintaining the historicals or have you more moved into the contemporary now? Yeah, I've just started writing another historical. This time it's kind of more of a time slip. So it's based in um, Blitz, London, and it will go back to the building of St. Paul's Cathedral. So it's uh, someone, a woman who is helping out with the St. Paul's watch to defend St. Paul's from bombs during the Blitz. And then she, there's a murder in St. Paul's and she finds herself going back in time picking up details to help solve the murder in the present. So I guess it's sort of a bit of both. I guess it's a bit of a bit historical, a bit more present day, but that will be under the C.S. Quinn. It sounds fabulous as well. <laughs> Have you come across Julie McElwain, who's done a series about an FBI agent who gets time warped into 1815 London? It, it rings a bell. It sounds like I should definitely go and take another look. I have been, I'm, I'm quite early in my research, so I haven't kind of been really digging in, but I will definitely look that one up. I'm just going to take a note of it. Julie. Julie McElwain. I, we interviewed her on the show back in 2018, which, when I think she only had about two books. She's just published her fifth one, and I think they have been picked up for TV. Yeah, but they are, they're fascinating, but it's a similar, quite, big concept of, uh, uh, you know, an FBI agent of, of our contemporary world. And she, she strange circumstances mean that she's trying to escape from some of her fellow agents and she somehow inadvertently escapes right back into 19th century London and doesn't quite know how to get back again. So it's, it's interesting, yeah. They sound fantastic, yeah. yeah. And also it's that thing of she doesn't want to do anything in 1815 that might influence what happens, you know, she feels oh, like she has to tiptoe around or else she's going to make some change which will change the whole course of history. So, <laughs> Oh, how interesting. Oh, they sound brilliant. Yeah. When you started out writing, what was your goal when you first started out and have you already reached that goal? I, I suppose my goal when I first started out was get published. So, yes, I, I would like to say I've reached that goal. I think I did have a goal at one point along the line. I think I wanted to make, I think I phrased it like I wanted to make one million people smile, was, uh-huh. was broadly my aim. So that would be, I don't know how many books you would have to sell to make that many people smile. You'd, you'd be going for a hit rate, I, one out of two books maybe, or, or you'd hope that maybe more books than that would would, would have that success rate. So I, I, I don't know if I've achieved that goal yet. I'd like to think I'm moving in that direction. Yes. We mentioned before that the two that we were talking about at the beginning, Blood Sisters and Black Widows, I think they've both been optioned for movie or TV. Tell us a bit about that. How far down the process are you? Yeah, so the first, so Black Widows was optioned by Blumhouse, who do The Purge, so they're kind of more on a horror side of things. But then because of lockdown, they were struggling with location and their option ran out. So it's just been bought again by the people who... Um, did Gossip Girl and that contract has literally just kind of landed on my desk and when I say landed it's kind of a real it's a 50 page document so it's landed with a definite thump so that is very early in the process yes and then Blood Sisters has been bought by a company in Australia a, a large sort of filmmaker and again we're just we're just at the contract stage because that book has only really just come out so, yeah, no, no name signs the project or anything at this stage. I think it's the way it is with options as, as a writer. I think you kind of mentally just park them as I hope yeah. that might happen yeah. one day. 
Yes. Um, but it is lovely when you get calls from, you know, we had a sort of few calls from Blumhouse and kind of talking through the creative things and we had a script written and things. It's, it's, it's very exciting to see it. Yes, that's right. I think it's a very big accomplishment on your part to even get a, a sort of agent at, right at the get-go. It's a pretty big achievement to do that. Oh, thanks. That's very kind. When you when you get asked by beginner writers for advice, what do you tell them? Oh, I've got quite a lot of advice, actually. I think my, one of my best pieces of advice for me was to read a book called Save the Cat, which I think most writers have read. It's quite a well-known book. It's kind of about screenwriting, but in terms of how to structure your book in a way, I think most writers will have strengths and weaknesses in terms of their innate understanding of story. And I think in my case, I'd, I'd like to think I'm good at beginnings, but I think I often raced too fast at the end and I didn't have a sort of natural pause where everything sort of falls apart so it's very helpful for me to kind of address that problem in my writing and then the other advice I think is I I use a piece of software called Scrivener which allows me to kind of chunk files around and put them in folders and sort of see in a very easy map like which file is where and move it about. Yes, that is a good app to use. Look, we do like to ask you about your reading tastes because this is the joys of binge reading. We are catering for people who, if they discover a writer, like the idea of going and reading some of their other work. So tell us a bit, first of all, are you have you ever been a binge reader? Are you a binge reader now? And just generally, who are you reading and would, who, you, who would you recommend? Absolutely, I'm a binge reader. Uh, I have just, quite fittingly, I think, for this for this uh, podcast, binge read uh, No Country for Girls, which you may have come across by Emma Stiles, which is a fantastic book, like a Thelma and Louise set in the outback. That I would yes. definitely recommend yeah. you get a hold of if you haven't already. That, I read that in, I think, a day. Um, oh, really? And it probably would have been shorter had I <laughs> had not had delightful small children around needing my time. I'm also reading a book called The It Girl by Ruth Ware. Ruth is a raising crime writer, as I'm sure you know. So it's so a lot of crime at the moment because I think the world that I'm in, I'm hanging out with a lot of crime writers, I suppose. And I, and I love sort of celebrating their work and seeing what they're doing, really, seeing how they're doing it better than me. There's a, another, um, Geetha Lodge as well. I've just finished her Little Sister, which is her latest release. And Mark Edwards who's published with Thomas and Mercer, so he is published mainly online, but he's like the sort of English Stephen King. His books are incredible and so kind of visceral and page-churning and, and real life and yet kind of spooky and creepy at the same time. Oh, that's good. So you really are into the crime yourself. That's something you love? I do. I mean, I love all kinds of books, which I appreciate is a little bit of a cop-out. And I, and I go through different phases, as I'm sure most people do, of reading kind of different genres. So I'm I'm also part of a book group, so I so I get to read the kind of the latest sort of literary big hitters as, as they come out, which which is quite good quite a good discipline for me actually because I think I might I might want to read them, but I might not think I had the time to fit them in. Whereas a book club means you yeah. have to. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Looking back down the tunnel of time, and we're talking about your writing career. Is there if there was one thing that you could could change, what would it be? Oh, that's a really good question. I mean, normally with these things, I, t- I I sort of am tempted to kind of say that I wouldn't change. I also think it's kind of part of the journey, isn't it? That, yeah. That what you yeah. learn is what you're meant to learn. But maybe that's a little bit fatalistic. I think maybe I would have had more confidence and gone for a contemporary thriller 
from the get-go. But then I enjoyed those historical books so much. So so it's hard to say that as well. But I suppose, yes, that that's probably would be my answer, that maybe I, I would have had more confidence and, and just tried to shoot for the stars and go for the big contemporary. Yes, yeah. What's next for Kate as writer? Can you tell us a little bit about what you've got on, say, over the next 12 months without giving anything away? Sure. I'm at the moment I'm writing a book. So I've just finished a book that's a murdering rehab book. So I I did end up going to rehab that for that book, which was a, a great experience. And now I no longer drink alcohol. So that's been good for me all round. And then this book is the book that I'm writing currently is set in a convent. So I'm going to stay with lots of nuns in lots of different convents. So I've just been to this convent in Paris with my daughter. Um and what was the other convent I went to? I also stayed in a convent in London and I've got a few more on my list. So I'm having a wonderful time <laughs> exploring <laughs> that, that a, aspect of the world. Is that a historical or a contemporary? This one is contemporary. And then also at the same time, kind of I'm writing a contemporary, uh, sorry, a historical book set around St. Paul's Cathedral. So I'm also doing research trips to St. Paul's Cathedral and ho- hopefully booking into their reading rooms and going to a few scary crypts of churches in London. <laughs> that sounds a great concept as well, the St Paul's one. Do you enjoy hearing from your readers and where can they find you online? Yeah, I think every writer enjoys hearing from their readers, I think, do they? Yes, I, I think really so. do. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I can be found pretty pretty easily, really. I'm on Twitter and I'm on Instagram, but I'm not so good on Twitter. I don't get Twitter so well, but I do seem to kind of get Instagram. I don't know why. I think it's a bit more like Facebook. So I'm definitely ready readily available on Instagram. And I think my email is on my website, so people can email me if you want. Yeah. Yeah. We'll put links to all of those in the show notes for this episode. We put out a total transcript. I'm sort of starting to wonder how much use that is really, because at least 80% of the people who listen to the show listen to it on mobile. So, you know, it's not something they're probably going to be going and reading. They listen to it. They don't really read read it. But yeah, we'll still I put guess that so. I've read podcast transcripts actually to save time. So I've certainly found them yeah. useful. Yeah. If you want, yes, if you want to, you know, quickly scale through them, it's a good way. That's great. Well, thanks so much, Kate. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Jenny. Next week on Binge Reading, J.F. Ped. She's known as Joanna Penn for her non-fiction work. She does a lot of excellent work helping other writers get their books published but as J.F. Penn fiction author she's a New York Times and USA Today best-selling author in her own right. She writes best-selling thrillers, dark fantasy and crime and we're talking to her about her latest arcane thriller the 12th book in the series Tomb of Relics. It's a best-selling series. It's got all of the popular themes, relics of power, international locations, adventure with an edge of the supernatural, all that you can imagine in a Dan Brown type of book. That's JFP next week. And in the meantime, that's it for today and happy reading.